536. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Happy Monday, everybody. Tale of two days on the weekend. Uh, Saturday, about as crummy as it gets, unless you were in Chicago. We are actually going to talk about the controversy involving the Brewers and the Cubs a little later. Yesterday, pretty darn nice day. We start off today's program like we start off every program. Three big things. Big story number one. The snowflakes at Notre Dame rebel. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence had been invited to give the commencement address Sunday at Notre Dame. They actually they had it apparently at, at the stadium. Um, about 2,000 students graduating, their parents, their family members, their friends uh, in the stands. When it was announced that Vice President Pence, the, by the way, Vice President of the United States, had been invited to speak, oh, there were some of the snowflakes under the dome who were just upset. They were concerned that if Mike Pence were to appear, that would violate the whole notion of safe spaces at a college campus. I mean, heaven forbid that the Vice President of the United States should come there. It might cause some of the domer snowflakes to, I don't know, want to seek counseling or something of the like. In any event... Uh, the graduation proceeds. The valedictorian who was invited to give the speech apparently goes off on a lengthy rant against the Trump administration and the Trump's policies and things like that. Blah de blah blah de blah. It comes to the time when Mike Spent Pence is supposed to speak. This is the vice president, and and actually. From what I understand, and the portions I saw, the speech, um, very, very good, very, very appropriate. What you would expect in a college commencement address. Um, he talked about, you know, the, the future of... Uh, their, their futures and how you can make the world a better place. Um, he, he did offer a rebuke of political correctness on college campuses. But a lot of the people who were graduating did not hear that because what happened is, as he began to speak... Um, a couple hundred of the graduates decided that they would get up and that they would walk out. Now, apparently they had organized this in advance, so that is the story, people walking out on on Mike Pence. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I think, and I'd be willing to hear from any of you Golden Domer graduates, I think this is an absolute and total embarrassment and i think the soon-to-be adults who did this yesterday should be ashamed of themselves vice president pence was an invited guest um vice president pence is what the you know he is one heartbeat away from the presidency it is an honor to have him there it is nothing short of rude in my opinion to walk out on him and the idea that gee we hate the president so much that we cannot sit politely during this graduation ceremony says more about the kids who did this than it says about vice president pence or then it says about Notre Dame for inviting him. This was, in my opinion, an embarrassment. And the people who did it should be embarrassed of themselves. They disgraced Notre Dame. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. Your reaction to the latest incident on a college campus was this I mean, I guess they have the right to do it. That's not the question. Nobody can force them to stay in. But was this an embarrassment for Notre Dame? I say absolutely. It's 840. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620.
843, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTM, Vice President Mike Pence invited to speak at Notre Dame's graduation. I said Notre Dame was Jesuit. It's not. It's actually it's a Catholic university associated with the uh, Congregation of Holy Cross. But it's a Catholic university. Regardless, yesterday at the stadium, as Vice President Pence begins to speak, a number of the students decide to stand up and walk out. I think it was rude. Pat in Milwaukee. Pat, you're first. Good morning. Your judgment, your news judgment. This is not a big thing. This was a, a non, uh, almost a non-event. It was an exercise of free speech without speaking. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's not rude and disrespectful. Well, how uh, people have that right to be. Uh, I, I they, they have. I right. I, I understand. I said that, Pat. They have the right so to be rude and di- because so it's rude and disrespectful. Thanks. Okay. I mean, I think it says. I'll tell you what. It's not that they don't have the right to do it. I'm not calling for people to be arrested, but it is rude and it is disrespectful. And it is representative, in my opinion, of what is going on on college campuses today and what passes for discourse in society. If somebody did this to Barack Obama, the headlines would be screaming racist, intolerant, neo-Nazi conservatives. Um, you're not getting those type of, of, of headlines. That this is it is the double standard that exists. But it what's it is what passes now for what is acceptable behavior on college campuses. Yeah, again, am I calling for people to be arrested? No, but let's identify this for what it is: rude and disrespectful. And that is why it is a story, at least in my opinion. Todd in Greenfield. Todd, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. Good morning. Hi, Thanks for taking my call. Sure. You know, this ceremony represents a transition from being children into adulthood. And they acted like children. Yep. And I don't want to talk about, down about their parents, but I wonder what their parents thought of them doing that. Well, I think some of the parents actually walked out as well, is what I understand. But I mean, it's. Well, I mean, it's it, a sign of society these days on how there's disrespect for authority. Yeah. And you're supposed to be respectful for who's talking to you and yeah. take into consideration the advice that you're getting you're listening to at that point very important to your moving forward in life or or, or don't listen i mean right right or 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 don't listen or don't pay attention or or whatever but you know you walk out that has a disruptive nature this is all everybody is talking about i don't think it's i don't think it's fair to your classmates because now people aren't focused on the graduation they're focused on on the protest and uh, again it to me I'm with you. It's disrespectful. They acted like kids. But this happens on a regular basis. And because it's President Trump and Vice President Pence, everything goes. It's fair. If it was Barack Obama, this would be a huge story. Actually, the other thing I wanted to point out is the media covering it. Then it sensationalizes it, and then it could spread to other universities. The media should be more discrepancy um well, what they televised well but i mean thanks but but i mean it happened i mean i i, I understand it happened i i think it's i mean i think it's a story to that effect and of course the, the the students knew that it was going to be a story and that's what they attempted to do and like i say i'm not calling on anybody to be arrested i appreciate that they have a right to do it i am just suggesting i think it is an embarrassment on our text line uh makes me sick the vice president politely sat through the valedictory valedictorian's rude and unnecessary rant yet they have the audacity to not afford him the same respect yeah that's i guess that that is my point but it's this idea that if you have somebody who challenges the orthodoxy of liberal political correctness who shows up 
you know, on a college campus to give, by the way, what I think everybody thought was a pretty appropriate speech. It's not like he was up there insulting folks. He was talking about, you know, the need for open discourse. I just think it is an embarrassment. And if I'm a Notre Dame graduate, if I were a Notre Dame graduate, I would be embarrassed by the conduct of these graduates. Alex in Campbellsport. Alex, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. This is what our kids are paying fifteen thousand dollars for. Oh, 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 I suspect a lot more than fifteen thousand dollars a year. My guess, Notre Dame, with uh, just off the top of my head, my guess is closer to forty grand a year. Would be my guess. And this is the kind of education we give these kids. These professors are the ones that should be ashamed of themselves for teaching this. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, thanks for the call. Obviously, I'm sure there's a bunch of professors that were applauding this as well. But they, these were the students who, who did it, including, I was reading one of the stories, one of the organizers, um, 29, I think it said the, the guy was 29 years old. So, I mean, yeah, 29, a protester, um, you know, said the students who walked out, you know, um, he said, okay, they're, they're trying to make a political statement. I get it, and there's certainly appropriate ways to make a political statement. I'm just arguing that this was not the time. Let's see, on our text line. I think it's great to have a list of these individuals who so proudly exercised their right, but so rudely interrupted the ceremony for anyone else. I'm sure they are proud of their actions and will not hesitate to be part of the list. Then splash it on the professional so- social media sites and see what the reaction from potential employers is. Yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting theory to this um as well another uh, alex on our text line i am a new college graduate millennial and i am in total disbelief about this incident i was taught to respect your elders no matter what race or political affiliation he's the vice president these people better not ever speak out about discrimination on any level then i don't like trump particularly but this is something i'd never do right that that's that is my point he the man is an invited guest um if you don't want to listen don't listen. If you don't want to applaud, you sit on your hands, that's fine. But this was an effort to disrupt, you know, what was going on in the real world. Let's talk to Todd in Green Bay. Todd, you're on 620 WTMJ. Um, I just think it's a real disrespect to the school. I mean, to uh, um, Vice President Pence. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is when these kids get into the real world, you can sit in <laughs> meetings, the CEO is going to be talking to you. <laughs> And all of a sudden, you're going to get up and walk out. Right, right. You're not going to have too many jobs. Well, right. Or, or let's imagine, let's imagine that you're working in, you're, you're working somewhere, and the vice president of the United States is invited to come tour your facility by the CEO. Um, and you decide, and he's going to give some remarks. You organize a couple of your buddies, and you decide that you're going to walk out of that presentation. Good luck with that. You know, exactly. just good luck. Right. And again, I I appreciate. That this is not the, the most overwhelming story, but but you've heard this is an ongoing pattern. Remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when you had the um, Secretary of Education um, DeVos who was speaking um, at the college in Florida, and you had all sorts of people decided to walk out with that. I mean, at some point in time, you know, have have we lost the civility? And again, I go back to the whole notion of the double standards as well. You would have never seen conservatives would never have done this. As a general rule, you have conservatives that exercise at least some degree of civility. Conservatives would not have walked out on Barack Obama. Conservatives would have not walked out on uh, Attorney General Eric Holder. They just 
wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have walked out on Joe Biden because they disagreed with Obamacare or whatever. But because it swung around and because it's on the left, you get the different perspective. Um, Mike in Milwaukee texts, I think these kids should have to take another four years to be taught respect. Um, I don't know that that's uh, the factor. Let's talk to, um, let's see, Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. Um, I, I think this really falls on the university and the parents. Um, these kids can do what they want, but we're also you have to teach them responsibility. So consequences, there's consequences for your actions. So you you walk out during the middle of the ceremony, you don't get your diploma, and you have to do something, or you it's noted somewhere on your diploma that you didn't receive it, or there's somewhere that people will know that you, you did what you did. Yeah. And if you're proud of it, great. You it's, own it. It's, yeah. it's there. You yeah. own it. But in it, in the parents, if I was a parent and I paid that tuition and my son is actually looking at that university right now yeah um i would go nuts if he did that yeah right exactly and my guess is mike you'd also look this this had the effect of disrupting the ceremony. Now, they didn't yell, they didn't scream, but they got up and they walked out. It had the effect of disrupting the event. I, if I were one of the vast majority of either students that was going through this or parents in the stand that didn't participate in this nonsense, I'd be mad as hell. I mean, hey, I'm, I'm here to celebrate the graduation, and you've got these punks that have decided that they're going to celebrate themselves by staging the protest. Right, and if you want to do that... It, don't come to the ceremony. Just yeah. Don't do right. it for the rest of us by having it. Because if yeah. I'm there and I'm filming it or yep. whatever, it, it just it would be very irritating to me. And the university, again, the univer- it was uh, falls on the university. If they knew, and I'm sure they knew that there was going to be this potential protest, right. they have to lay down the law before the ceremony. Right, and say what the consequences are going to be. Yeah, no, thank I mean, yeah, you're, you're right. If, if you are, if you as a snowflake are so offended by the ideas that the vice president might put out, well, okay, fine. Go go with God. Just just stay at home. You know, just kind of, you know, curl up in the fetal position in your apartment and put on MSNBC and hear what you need to hear. Okay, but don't disrupt the event. 856, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. If you want to understand how screwed up airline travel is today, okay, you, you, you can't get on a plane with a car seat without causing problems. But yet you have this story about what happened the other day um, on a flight from L.A. to Hawaii. All right, here's the story. It it starts off with this guy at LAX, Los Angeles, who's apparently a 25-year-old native of Turkey who is in this country on a student visa for an acting school. He's at the airport in L.A. The police arrest him because he's apparently trying to go through some door to get out on the tarmac, right? So they arrest him. They think he's been drinking, but they decide he's ultimately not drunk, so they give him a ticket. So then he gets on another airplane. Okay, so here you have a guy who's tried to walk out on the tarmac. He ends up getting on this flight to L.A. He tries, they describe him as being disheveled and acting oddly. He tries to sit in a first-class seat with a laptop. Flight attendant says, you don't belong here. Get to economy class. He apparently leaves the laptop behind, freaking out a couple other first-class passengers. So they, they let him on the plane. The plane takes off. Halfway through the flight from L.A., he shows up back in first class, holding the laptop and trying to bum-rush the cockpit. 
All right. At that point, the flight attendant runs down the aisle with her serving cart, blocks the entrance. She jams the cart in the doorway. Passengers then stand up, restrain him, and then they duct tape him to a seat. Okay, so he's ultimately arrested. But here's the bottom line of this. The guy tried to walk out on the tarmac at LAX. They thought he was disheveled. They thought he was drunk. And yet you let him on the plane. Once he gets on the plane, he tries to sit in seats that don't belong to him. He leaves his laptop behind. You get tossed off for getting into an argument about a car seat, whether you agree with that story or not, and you let this Turkish guy kid who's here on a student visa who is acting in a fashion that I think you could describe bizarre get on a six-hour flight. He's duct-taped in, and then he gets a fighter jet, jet escort, um, and then he's ultimately arrested. But what was this guy doing on the plane in the first place? How did he get through security after he tried to walk out on the tarmac? Big thing number two is coming up. It's 8.59. Jeff Wagner, Bill Cosby's trial starts today for sexual assault. We will talk about that later in the hour. Right now, we're in the middle of our three big things. Uh, Big story number two. Everybody is aware of the controversy involving President Trump and his meeting with uh, the Russian ambassador and the Russian prime minister um, in the Oval Office a week or so ago. This was the meeting where he allegedly revealed confidential information, very, very secret classified information. Uh, the suggestion is that he did this just kind of as sort of like barroom talk, um, and it's created a huge issue. Did, you know, did he give information away that could possibly be traced back to different sources? That, that will all play out. Um, in notes that are being released from that meeting, he apparently also um, told the Russians that he had, quote-unquote, just fired the head of the FBI. He was, this is a quote, I, had ju- I just fired the head of the FBI. He was crazy, a real nut job. And then he went on to say, I faced great pressure because of Russia. That's taken off. Then he apparently added, I'm not under investigation. So if you want to interpret you know, one interpretation of this would be, again, he identifies the former head of the FBI as, as a nut job. And then I, I was under pressure because of these allegations involving me and, and you. Um, that is now taken off. So one interpretation of this is that he was legitimately concerned that the investigation by James Comey and the FBI would lead somewhere and lead to him. I was under pressure. Now that's taken off because he's gone. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation that's being given by some of the Trump uh, aides is that uh, the president was using a negotiating tactic when he told the Russians about the pressure he was under. The argument being, hey, he's trying to buddy up to the Russians and he's trying to create a sense of obligation and, you know, coax concessions out of them by saying, hey, you know, your, your meddling in this election had created enormous political problems for me. Um, I, I was so you owe me something. Those are the two interpretations that are being offered. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Some would suggest that this was Donald Trump at his best. This was the art of the deal. This was Donald Trump 
making calculated remarks to the Russians in an effort to curry favor, to bring them over to his side, to create this sense of obligation. Hey, what you guys did created huge problems for me, um, but now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this, and let's move forward and do things. The other interpretation is, again, it's the president venting, kind of saying stuff out of school without much thought as to what the implications are, including suggesting that the person who has been running the FBI is a real nut job and that he fired him because he was under pressure. All right, was this great strategy or was this just the president mouthing off? 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I I have tried and I continue to try to give President Trump the, the benefit of the doubt. And I understand that I'm in a sort of different position because the way this country has evolved right now is you have some people who believe that Donald Trump is just this brilliant tactician and this brilliant politician and everything he does is a calculated move designed to elicit a response. You have another portion of the country who believe that he is a buffoon and that you know nothing he does can be correct. I actually think the truth is is in the middle. I I think that some of his policies are very, very good. At the same time, I I think that he is a loose cannon. I think that he is erratic. And I think that he has the impulse control of a fruit fly and says stuff that he should not say. Like, here, I've got this classified intelligence. Let me share it with you. I lump this latest story into, I, I think, that second category. I do not understand why you would be telling the Russians that you think that the FBI director is a quote-unquote real nut job. I don't understand why you would be telling the Russians that I faced great pressure because of you. That is taken off. To me, when he says things like that, again, it just invites his distractors to say, see, see, see. There was a political motivation behind this. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Brilliant negotiating strategy designed to bring the Russians over, or just a guy venting, who happens to be the leader of the free world. 414-799-1620, I... Um, Again, I, 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 side with, I side with venting, and I sit here wondering, why would you say something like this to the Russians? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 914, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 917, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So President Trump generating a lot of controversy when he allegedly tell he's generating controversy in the Middle East as well. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But controversy when he supposedly tells the Russians that um, he just fired the head of the FBI. He was crazy, a real nut job. I faced great pressure because of Russia. That is taken off. Some suggest that this was this masterful strategy. I don't believe it. I just think, again, what happened is you, you have a president. And I try to walk a fine line with President Trump because I agree with some of the policies that he's, that he's implementing. But his biggest enemy is his own big mouth. And he just cannot help himself. Russia is not our friend. Russia is not our friend. And while I think it is in everyone's interest to try to develop to the extent you can 
a decent working relationship with Russia, one of the other global superpowers. The truth of the matter is they're not going to be our pals. They're not going to be our buddies. They were clearly, in my opinion, trying to mix in with, in effect, U.S. elections. And for the president of the United States to be meeting with high-level Russian officials and telling them that he thinks that the director of the FBI was or is a real nut job and suggesting that uh, there was causing pressure, the Russian meddling was causing pressure, and now that's relieved, Donald Trump invites the type of scrutiny that he's going to get because people are going to turn around and say, well, that shows, goes to show that there was a political motivation in firing James Comey. So I've argued before, I don't really think there was. I, I think what happened is Trump demands absolute loyalty from the people who work for him. And in the private sector, if you didn't get that, you fire them. Um, when you work for the federal government, when you're the director of the FBI, there's occasionally a different dynamic that's out there. And yes, you serve at the pleasure of the president, but you, you know, you have your own independent oath to the Constitution. And sometimes you can't be directly and totally and 100 percent loyal to the president. And if the president asks you to make public statements that you don't believe are correct, well, you, you have every obligation to say, I'm not going to do that. So. Big story number two, I don't think it was part of a grand strategy. I think it was just Donald Trump being Donald Trump. And the sooner he learns to kind of rein himself in, I think the better. Big story number three, fake news or a real big deal? Okay, Sheriff David Clark, This, the way this is playing out is kind of fascinating to me. Um, last Wednesday, Sheriff David Clark announces that he is accepting a job with Homeland Security. It's not a job that requires Senate approval. It's like a sub-cabinet level thing, but it's a pretty big job. He announces it. This created, and I'm told that this created a lot of problems because the way it works is you don't announce those type of jobs yourself. If you are offered a job and you have accepted it, the protocol is that homeland, that the particular cabinet secretary or the president announces it. Normally it's the cabinet secretary. So in this case, it would be something that comes from the Department of Homeland Security. So Clark jumped the gun, and I'm told that this caused quite a lot of heartburn in Washington. To my knowledge, they still have not announced this. In addition, when I talked to Governor Walker, that he, he said, like late last week, he said as of late last week, the sheriff had not submitted his letter of resignation yet. That's what starts the whole ball rolling as far as replacing him. So I don't know if the premature disclosure of this has caused you know any, any sort of issues at all. What did happen is with the disclosure of this, it's given the long knives the opportunity to come out. Let's face it, David Clark is, is a lightning rod. He's very, very controversial. And you've had a number of people, including the f- person who used to hold this job, who's writing like op-ed pieces saying David Clark is completely unqualified and unsuited to be what this job requires. So David Clark has made himself, again, a lightning rod, and he's calling all sorts of attention to this, which makes you wonder whether they are continuing, um, whether they're thinking about rescinding this particular you know, job offer. Don't know that that's the case or not. But by making this particular announcement, he's given people the opportunity to now come out and to denounce him. If he would have just kept his mouth shut, taken the job right away, I think a lot of this would have gone away. So you have CNN, which comes out with a story. CNN says that he has plagiarized essentially his master's thesis. Um, as many people know, 
while he was serving as the sheriff, while he was serving as the sheriff, he, he was also attending a, a naval postgraduate school. He was studying for his master's, which he got. As part of the process of getting your master's degree, you have to write a thesis. And now CNN is saying, we've looked at this thesis, and he's guilty of plagiarism. Now, plagiarism is is essentially stealing somebody else's work. Uh, Joe Biden was noted for plagiarism. I mean, when Joe Biden ran for president in the 80s, I mean, Joe Biden w- was, he was like giving speeches that where he lifted large chunks of the speeches w- without attribution. He got in trouble for that when he was in uh, college as well. But plagiarism is stealing other people's work and presenting it as, as your own, essentially. When you write a master's thesis, it is not uncommon. Matter of fact, it, it is very common that if you're going to advance a particular point, you want to, you know, use references to try to buttress your point. So if, for example, you're arguing, hey, Wisconsin should have a flat tax because X other state has a flat tax and this, that, that tax is working really well in that state. Well, if you haven't done the research for that state, what you do is you find a scholarly study that, you know, says, and then you, you cite to it in your, in your text. Now, the way you would commonly do that is you would put in a footnote. Hey, the flat tax works really well in wherever, Kansas, whatever. I don't know if Kansas has a flat tax or not, but whatever. And then you put a footnote in, and then in the footnote, you know, you'd, you'd say where that information comes from, and you'd attribute it to, you know, whatever. Generally speaking, the rules are that if you are going to include um, lengthy, if you're going to include things verbatim, from other people's work, what you do is you put it in quotation marks to indicate that it's not yours, that you are quoting it. And if it's a lengthy segment, like a paragraph or something like that, you're supposed to indent it just to make sure that there's no question that that's not you saying it, it, that you're getting it from somewhere else. All right. So David Clark writes this master's thesis, and I'll try to explain this as best I can. He doesn't and he he quotes liberally from other sources. He cites the sources where he is getting the information. He includes stuff verbatim, and he puts footnotes in saying where he's getting the information from. He doesn't put in the quotation marks. So you, you don't see the quotation marks, but he puts in the footnote. So he is there's no question he's not trying to pass the work off as his own. Because he's saying where he got the information. And anybody who would look at the footnote would see, okay, this is where it came from, and would see that he is using stuff from the text. But he doesn't put it in quotation marks. So this, I think, I mean, the way I read this, um, this probably, I think probably definitely does, you know, violate the school's rule with regard to giving appropriate credit, because they say that you're supposed to, uh, again, put in the quotation marks. So he doesn't put in the quotation marks, but at the same time, he's clearly not, I think, trying to claim that this is his own work, because if you were trying to do that, you wouldn't put in the footnotes. So this is the lead story, and it's been there for two days. Um, Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark denying plagiarism in his master's thesis. This was the big story on CNN. 414-799-1620 is our number. All right, is this a big deal? Is this David Clark trying to pass other people's work off as his own? Or is this, 
I don't know, may, maybe technically sloppy, but no harm, no foul. Is this fake news? 414-799-1620 is the number. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss. It's 926. This is Jeff Wagner. If you're on the line, please hold on. 929, Jeff Wagner, 620, WTMJ. Two words, in my opinion, to describe this story, fake news. Doug in Waukesha. Doug, good morning. Hi. Hi, Doug. My my feelings on this are I don't know who was reviewing his uh, his work with him. Yep. And it just to me it's just a matter of maybe just poor grammar, or, you know, not editing things properly. Right, right. It, look, right. Here's I'm, it, it's interesting. I have, an, I have a, a text here from Greg and Jackson who says I'm currently studying for a master's degree in health administration, and I, I'm working, you know, with with these these faculty advisors. Um, you know, you submit this stuff. His master's thesis could have easily been run through one of these checkers. It would return a score or percentage. Um, the, the whole point is the advisor, you know, should have caught it. The university has accepted it. Then plagiarism hasn't occurred. Yeah, I mean, did, did he violate the protocol? Should he have put it in quotation marks? Yes. But if he's trying to cheat, you, you don't you don't attribute where it came from. He used footnotes instead of the quotations. He should have used the quotation marks. But that's not trying to steal. I, to, to call this plagiarism, I think, is absurd. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I mean, th- again, and, it's, and you, you have advisors. You submit these things. They look at it. If somebody had a concern with this, you would have said, okay, set it off in quotation marks. And he should have set it off in quotation marks. I mean, I understand the procedures for these academic type of things, but, but that's far different from saying you use the footnote instead of a quotation mark is far different from trying to say that you stole somebody else's ideas and tried to pass them off as your own. That's what I thought this story was originally going to be. And then when I see it and I see that he's listing all the citations, admit it, should have used quotation marks, not the footnotes. I'm thinking, all right, really? This is CNN trying to peddle fake news. Clark is controversial. He is a lightning rod. I understand all that. And there's all sorts of things that you can legitimately criticize David Clark for. I appreciate it. And I have done that on occasion where I think it's appropriate. This one is a complete, in my opinion, in total, nothing burger. People need to move on. It's 936. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. After a 4-2 road trip that has them sitting atop the National League Central, the Brewers return to Miller Park tomorrow evening. The homestand begins with an interleague matchup against the Toronto Blue Jays. Bob and Jeff are on the call beginning at 6.05 tomorrow, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Yeah, Just, just one final thought on the, the whole, you know, David Clark thing. I, there are many, many reasons that, that you can criticize David Clark. I, I get that. And if you want to argue that he's unqualified for this job with Homeland Security because of his temperament or because of his background or because of stuff that happened at the Milwaukee County Jail, okay, I, I get it. Reasonable people can disagree. That is a fair argument. But this story about, gee, the master's thesis being plagiarized is, in my opinion, completely, it's a hatchet job, nothing more and nothing less. When you do master's theses, you submit them typically to an advisor. Um, In this particular situation, you would have thought that if there was an issue with the style, using footnotes instead of quotation marks, you would, and and I, I do think, it should have been quotation marks. I mean, I think that, that that's fair. You know, if you're going to quote passages, what you do is you're supposed to set it off and you're supposed to put quotation marks in, then you put in the footnote. Okay, he didn't put it in quotation marks, but he used the footnote. He's not trying to pass this off as somebody else's 
as his own work that and in fact it stole it from other people because he's got the attributions this is a technical matter and candidly if this is the best you can come up with to argue that David Clark is unqualified for a particular position, you're, you're struggling. But again, it's part of the overall hatchet job that is going on. And to me, fake news. And it's why if people get frustrated with the media, this was the bre- heavy breathing story on CNN the other night. And it's, in my opinion, at least a complete and total nothing burger. All right. Let us switch gears. I have said before on this program, I am a huge fan of the circus. I used to, as a kid, love going to the circus. And, of course, when you're talking about the circus, the biggest one, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus. Um, The circus had been in existence for 146 years. There are other circuses that still operate but Ringling Brothers was was the gold standard. Um, a couple years back, now, now first of all, you do you always have to grapple with with changing tastes, and perhaps never more so than now because there's so many different entertainment choices that are out there. Um, and, and many of which you can engage in without ever leaving your home. You've got the video games. You've got all the stuff that's going on. So much of this stuff you don't even have to leave your home to to enjoy and to participate in this. And the idea of bu- buying tickets and actually you know going out as a family and sitting and watching an event for a couple hours. Well, okay, that's that's a fading sort of thing. I mean, just talk to movie theaters and how hard that they're trying to struggle to get people to come out. One of the big attractions of the circus had always been. The circus animals. You know, you can see these elephants that do tricks and things like that. The animal rights folks aggressively have been going after the circuses, alleging that this is cruel, it's awful, um, you, you shouldn't keep animals in captivity. And, you know, they, they went after Ringling Brothers as well as a number of other circuses. And Ringling Brothers made the decision not that long ago that, fine, they weren't going to use elephants in the circus anymore. Well, the problem is a lot of the people that were buying tickets, one of the reasons they came to the circus is they loved to see, like, the elephant acts. That was one of the, the main attractions. So, number one, you've got changing tastes. You're trying to, you know, deal with how, how do you you know, younger people to continue to come and want to go see the circus. So that's the number one thing. Then number two, you take out one of the biggest attractions. And, you know, what happened is that Ringling Brothers, they, they just weren't selling sufficient tickets. So last night, um, there was the final show of the Ringling Brothers Circus. And, you know, um, it was in New York. After they did the show, um, they, they take they take a bow, and after 146 years, they wrap up. Um, there's no more greatest show on earth. There will maybe be other circuses, but but who knows? Because again, if economic conditions and the animal rights activists can bring down Ringling Brothers, you would think that they're going to bring down others as well. Our number four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think it is a darn shame that Ringling Brothers was forced to close. I think they made a huge mistake in 
giving in to the pressure from the animal rights activists and discontinuing the, the elephant acts because I think that greatly contributed to their demise. You know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, would people have lost interest? Yes. But once you take away one of the major attractions, it gave a lot of people an excuse not to go out and buy the tickets. I think it is a tragedy that these shows ended up um, closing down. I think it would be awful if future generations of Americans, you know, were to grow up without having circuses to go to. And I, I just I guess I wish Ringling Brothers would not have given in to the pressure. I will great if circuses disappear, I will greatly miss them. And I think a lot of people will as well, because I was a huge fan. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are you glad to see the circus go? Oh, this is terrible. You know, who needs it? They're picking on the poor animals. Or is this a huge loss of a major American tradition? 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are you glad that Ringling Brothers is taking down the biggest show on earth, greatest show on earth? We discuss next. It's 942. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. I, for one, extremely sorry at these developments. Forty-six, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. After 146 years, last night, the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Circus took its final bow, um, a product of a couple things, declining ticket sales that made it economically unfeasible to continue. But a lot of that was informed by the decision a while back to discontinue, for example, the Elephant Acts. This does not end all traveling circuses, but this was the biggest one. I think it's a darn shame. Tom in Milwaukee. Tom, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. And thanks for taking my call. Sure. I, I think it's really sad that it's come to this, and uh, I would hope that the uh, powers that be for Ringling Brothers would uh, take a look at uh, Bush Gardens in Tampa Bay, mm-hmm. where they uh, have like a, a theme park, right? Uh, build up around you know Ringling Brothers should build up around their uh, animal or elephant sanctuary and. Uh, yeah. Have yeah. people come to that. At the same time, it won't be the same, you know, because remember the big deal when the circus came to town. You know, people would oh. look forward to that. Oh, definitely. Lining up downtown to see the circus train come by and all that. Oh, yeah. Right. And again, thanks. Right. Remember, for if you were of a certain age, you will remember exactly what Tom is referring to. I mean, the circus parade you know, used to be this, this huge deal in, in Milwaukee, and it would come every year, and they'd have this giant parade, and you know, it went on for year after year, and people kind of got tired of going to see it. So, I mean, I do appreciate that there's a... You know, the, the, the tastes change. Stuff that, you know, everybody did. Bowling is another example. I mean, I love bowling, but, okay, bowling was big. You know, when I was a kid, you know, everybody was in bowling leagues. Now, you know, bowling centers are closing down. So times and tastes change. I just think that, unfortunately, with Ringling Brothers, this was an unnecessary step. I think the circus would have continued were it not for the fact that they gave in to the animal rights activists. And I, I think... Is it possible that you had some circuses that that mistreated their animals? Well, okay, maybe. But Ringling Brothers, really? Let's talk to, uh, let's see, Brian in Pewaukee. Brian, you're in 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Hi, Brian. I think this is terrible. Um, I I remember the circus parade, and I remember going to circuses. Sure. And I wonder when these activists are going to start closing down zoos. Yeah. Right, because yeah, you're you're holding the you're holding the animals in cap, uh, captivity. Well, let me give you a, a more 
a more pertinent, perhaps even example, Brian. I mean, SeaWorld. I mean, SeaWorld. Remember, there was, there's all this thing about how we we got to end the killer whale shows, and this is yep. terrible. And so SeaWorld's giving into that. And what's happening? Attendance at SeaWorld is down because that's the type of stuff that people were coming, you know, to see. And I, I do think you're, you're going to have generations of people that aren't aren't going to know what circuses are. They're not going to know what places like SeaWorld are. And if I really thought they were abusing the animals, I'd feel differently. But I just don't think that's the case. Oh, we've survived on animals in captivity entertaining us. Um, yes. Well, well, right, exactly. And, and, and you can do that. I mean, thanks to call. I mean, like, for example, let's use the Ringling Brothers elephants. I mean, they were a huge, valuable asset. And, and I think, in general, they, they were treated as such. And the animal rights activists that don't like this, what they're focusing, of course, on is the whole notion that, well, okay, we, we shouldn't it, – it's not right for humans to get entertainment based on animals. Well, where do you draw the line? I think it's fair to say zoos. I mean, what about, you know, what about horse racing? I mean, that's – matter of fact, a couple of people are making that point – on uh they're they're making that point what about horse racing i mean should we do that and i'm getting texts through that represent the other thing basically if you do not have a problem with the circus continuing then you have no problem with supporting animal cruelty i don't agree with that i mean that i understand the hardcore activists any anything that you do that you know has you know an animal in captivity that's trained to do something or other anytime people pay money to do that that's that's basically animal cruelty no i i don't I, I just reject that entire notion. Is it possible that you have bad circuses where they mistreat the animals? Yeah, I, I'm sure. And in that particular case, I have no problem. I mean, shut those down or penalize them accordingly. But as a general rule, certainly with Ringling Brothers, I don't believe that that's the case. Bill and Waukegan. Bill, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Hi, hi good morning. My opinion on this, very quick, is I think... Uh, Barnum Bailey takes better care of the elephants instead of letting them in the wild and being poached in the jungle. Uh, well, right, because they are valuable assets, and they are treated as such and protected as such. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... I, I've told this story before, so so bear with me if if you if you've heard it. Um, I have, when I was growing up, a friend of mine had relatives who ran a mink farm. Okay, minks are nasty little animals. Okay, they're, they're just, they're nasty, they're vicious little animals. Um, and I will be the first to acknowledge the life of a mink is not a, a great life. I mean, I, I so I, I get that, you know, and, and, you know, because, I mean, minks are, are bred in some cases to, you know, to, to be killed to use their fur. And if you don't like the fact that people have the mink coats and stuff, I, I get it, I, I understand all that, but, but they're they're bred for that i mean it's kind of like cows that are raised to you know be, be used to make hamburger and stuff like that so anyhow there was a situation where these animal rights activists bust into this particular little mink ranch and they let the minks loose okay that's it we're freeing the minks we're doing this great job how terrible it is to keep these minks in captivity we're going to free the minks literally within 12 hours all the minks that they freed were dead <laughs> because they, they got out and they were just eaten by predators. I mean, it was just it was this incredible thing. We freed the minks. Oh, that's great. They're all dead. OK, well, 
um, you're really helping these minks. I mean, this is just, you know, this is just great. Yeah, a lot of people, what about the Budweiser horses? Okay, all right, the, those, the Clydesdales, I mean, are we, are, are, is that going to be the next effort? We've got to shut down no more Budweiser Clydesdales because, well, you know, they're in captivity. You know, what about pets? Somebody's texting. Don't they entertain us? Well, I mean, they give us lots of sort of stuff, including, I think, a degree of entertainment. My dog is cute as heck, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's... I, I just I think it would be a tragedy if we gave in and just said, okay, we're not going to allow circuses to exist. We're not going to allow zoos to exist. Just saying. The Bill Crosby's trial starts in Pittsburgh. I have a prediction as to how it's going to turn out. I'll share that with you in a couple of minutes. And the Brewers and Cubs, some controversy going on. We'll talk about that. Stick around. It's 953. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It is 9.55, Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. After a teacher is suspended for something she posted on Snapchat, some are left wondering if the punishment truly fit the crime. Get the details of that story and join the debate. Scafidi and Billstat, check them out. 12.35 this afternoon, coming up in about 10 minutes. Bill Cosby goes on trial. 79-year-old Bill Cosby goes on trial. They're picking the jury today. Will he be convicted? Should he be convicted? I'll tell you what I think is going to happen, and we will discuss. Uh, the Robert E. Lee statue is gone. And what's up with the Cubs? They won the World Series. Why are they so afraid of playing the Brewers? That's all coming up in just a couple minutes. Let me give you an update on a story that we talked about a, a great deal. You you might remember the name of, of Ahmad Mohammed. He was the kid from Dallas who almost two years ago, September of 2015, he's the one that brings the digital alarm clock he designed and constructed to his high school um, to show that. Teachers looked at this, um, saw visible wires coming out from the thing, believed it resembled a bomb, and called police. He was then uh, detained before he was released to his parents. This story, of course, went international. This kid became a... um, Uh, sort of a media star at the time. He was 14 years old. He was suspended for school from three days. Um, He got invited to the White House by President Obama. Um, Muslim civil rights groups, you know, got involved in this. And everybody was critical of the school saying, hey, if if this had been a non-Muslim kid who brought... I don't know, this device to school, it would not have generated the same uh, sort of issue. Well, in any event, the family um, filed a lawsuit. Family went to federal court in Texas and filed a lawsuit alleging that his constitutional guarantees of equal protection were violated, that this is part of anti-Muslim discrimination, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Late last week, the federal judge hearing this case said, nope, not going to happen. Dismissed the entire lawsuit, saying that they failed to prove that the school discriminated him because of his race or religion. The argument being that they're not convinced that if any other kid would have brought a similar-looking device, whether the school was right or wrong, and whether they overreacted to the fact that this device came in wasn't the issue. The question was, is there any evidence to suggest that it was based on his race or his religion? Federal judge says no. I'm sure the family will appeal because I have no doubt that they thought this was going to be a big payday. But at least for right now, the kid with the clock, the case gets thrown out. It's 10.07. This is Jeff Wagner. Bill Cosby, star of the Bill Cosby Show, which was like one of the leading things of family entertainment for years and years, the creator of Fat Albert. 
um, generally a, a revered a revered source. I mean, he was viewed as a father figure. Um, Bill Cosby was one of these people who came out early on and was speaking about the need for accountability in the black community and how um, you, you need fathers and people have to take responsibility for that. Somewhat of a lightning rod. I had an opportunity to interview Bill Cosby once. I think it was in connection with something he was going to do in Milwaukee. And um, I, I actually found him to be a very easy interview. When you interview some of these celebrities, sometimes sometimes they can be very difficult um, William Shatner, the Star Trek guy, remember that Hondo? We do that. He he was he was very difficult. Um, now, admittedly, I, I caught him at the end of a long series of interviews, but we he was very difficult. Bill Cosby was just great. I mean, Bill Cosby. Has any two found Albert? He played along. He, he was just great. And you know, Bill Cosby. Now, you know, who knows that one of the things that we've learned with a lot of these celebrities is there's the public persona, like think Tiger Woods, and then there's the, the guy behind the mask. All right, Bill Cosby. There are allegations that go back decades involving. Him and women. And, and the, the recurring allegation is that, you know, Bill Cosby would slip women drugs. And, and back in the 60s and 70s, there were these things called quaaludes. I never took a quaalude. But quaaludes, um, they were, uh, you know, the quaaludes were, at least in some circles, they were drugs of, of choice. You know, they were prescribed medication, but, you know, they... Um, they had the effect of relaxing you, I guess, and also inspiring and encouraging your libido. Never took a quaalude myself, but 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 that was it. During the sixties and seventies, that was like one of the drugs of choice. And there are allegations that you know Cosby would slip quaaludes unknowingly to women, and then he would have sex with them, and um, kind of essentially a, a date rape type of thing. He was sued by a number of women, and there were a number of different settlements over the years. Um, he was never charged criminally in connection with this until recently. Well, there's jury selection going on today in Pittsburgh, and it involves it involves a situation of an alleged, essentially like a date rape, I guess, of a woman named Andrea Constant. Now, I'm gonna I want to tell you the story, what she alleges, and then we're going to discuss whether or not you believe that Bill Cosby, regardless of what actually happened, you believe whether or not Bill Cosby is going to be convicted. Because th- there's two different stories there. I mean, I always, I, always, I, I always remember years and years ago when you had the Waukesha District Attorney's Office to charge former Packers tight end Mark Chamora or Packers with, with you know, sexually assaulting a, a teenage babysitter. And I remember sitting in this very chair when the criminal allegations came out and looking at the complaint and saying, look, I don't know what happened that, that night in that particular house, but looking at the complaint, it, it just it screamed reasonable doubt to me. I mean, that's what I, I I just I didn't think based on the evidence that they had, unless there was something more that they would get a conviction. And as it turned out, that that's precisely what happened. And again, I, I take no position on what happened. I don't know. I wasn't there. I was just the. The prosecution has to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay, so here's the story. The, the, the woman who's making these allegations, her name is um, Andrea Constant. She's a, a former, she's a Canadian former basketball player. She was 31 years old when she says this happened. 
sometime back in 2004. So this is 13 years ago. Now she's 44. At the time, she was working as the director of a woman's basketball team at Temple University. And Cosby's, that's his alma mater. He's big at at Temple. Um, She says um, they had met a couple years before Cosby was on the board of trustees. Um, she said that you know she had she had been to his house for dinner parties and private dinners during her time at at Temple. Um, she said that Cosby had offered to give her career advice. He had kind of of mentored her. Um, she says that she was involved in a relationship with a woman at the time of the incident. I don't know if she's bisexual or what, but she says she was involved with, with a woman. She says that uh, Cosby uh, came on to her. Um, she says on two occasions before what happened this particular night, um, she said Cosby had, had come on to her making embarrassing sexual advances, and she had rebuffed him on both of those occasions. So what she says happens is she goes over to his his house um, some time in January or February of 2004. She can't doesn't know exactly when it happened. She goes over there uh, seeking to be like mentored and to talk to him and she alleges that he gave her wine and three pills that he said were herbal med- herbal medication to relieve stress. She says it left her unable to speak and she says during this time he sexually assaulted her. Okay, so that's what the allegations are. Now this is 2004. January, February of 2004, you you might wonder, okay, Jeff, this is May of 2017. Why is this going on trial um, now? Well, um, what ended up happening is about, she didn't report this to anyone until about a year later. January of 2005, um, she goes to authorities. She, she makes these claims uh, the investigation goes nowhere because they, they just didn't have evidence at that point in time, and her charges were dropped. March of 2005, she files a lawsuit against Cosby, a civil lawsuit, and they end up settling it. So he, he paid her off. All right, so, okay, why why now? Well, right before the statute of limitations was going to expire, 2015, because all these other women have come forward, the prosecution decides that they are going to go ahead with it. So the case is 13 years old. Um, There's also some other issues that are going along with this as well. And from a prosecution perspective, there's going to be certain problems. First of all, again, the woman didn't report this until a year after she says it happened. Couldn't give an exact date as to when it ended up happening. Um, in additional, and additionally, she admits that she continued her contact with Cosby after this, this assault. Um, apparently, in March of 2004, a couple months after the incident, she agreed to go to a dinner with Cosby and a larger group, she says, so she could confront him about what happened Um, She ended up going to his house for dinner, never, quote-unquote, confronted him. She moves back to Toronto in the summer of 2004. She says um, apparently she then took her parents to a Bill Cosby show. They went backstage to to meet him. And apparently the allegations are she gave him a sweater as a gift at that show. So, you know, you've got 
those different things that are happening. If she's the sexual, this would be the way the prosecute the defense is going to play it. If she's the sexual assault victim, you know, why didn't she report it in a timely fashion? Why did she continue to have contact with him even after she would moved out of the Philadelphia, the Pen- out of Pennsylvania? Why did she, um, you know, why did she go to the guy's show? Why did she give him a gift? These are all these issues, um, but. The other thing we know is that there's all this evidence. All these women have emerged to say that Cosby did similar things to them over the years. Unless he testifies, most of that evidence is not going to be admitted. Uh, The judge has already ruled that for all intents and purposes, unless he takes the stand, um, and he's not going to take the stand in this case, unless he testifies, that that sort of those other act evidence isn't going to be admitted. They will allow testimony that he apparently acknowledged in a deposition that he had given women quaaludes over the years, but quaaludes haven't been made since, what, the 70s or the, the 80s. So nobody's arguing that he gave this woman a quaalude, but it would be like he gave other women quaaludes. All right. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I don't know what happened that night between Bill Cosby and and this woman back in 2004. I, I don't. And it certainly seems like if you have a large number of women who over the decades are telling similar sorts of stories that – that that's that's probably fire to go along with the smoke. I mean, if it was just one woman out of the guy's entire life making this claim, well, okay, you might say, well, that's just completely out of character. He's 79 years old. But th- there are a number of women that are making this claim. Most of the conduct is beyond the statute of limitations. That all being said, I... I will be shocked if the prosecution is able to get a conviction in this case without taking any position at all as to what actually happened. This is a case that, to me, screams reasonable doubt. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. What's going to happen? What should happen? Should Bill Cosby even have been charged? He's 79 years old. He's in ill health. This is a case that they looked at and decided not to charge you know, a, a dozen years ago. Now, because of all the attention surrounding Bill Cosby, it's back. Is he going to get convicted? Should he be convicted? What do you think? 414-799-1620. I just think it's a difficult prosecution. But, again, um, Bill Cosby is certainly not a sympathetic figure, I don't think. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Will he be convicted? Should he have even been charged? We discuss next. Microphone button sticks. <laughs> it's, it, well, it, it's actually better that it sticks when I try to turn it on, I guess, than when I try to turn it off. That's <laughs> that's sort of it. Um, all right. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I am fascinated to watch this trial, and I will tell you, um, just like other celebrities who end up with, with feet of clay, I am convinced that, that Bill Cosby, over the years, is is a great a sleaze i i just am and this, this public image that he portrayed about being this great family man and stuff i i have i have no doubt that 
you know, whether these were sexual assaults or whether it was here, you know, we're going to do these drugs to help do this stuff or, or whatever. I mean, I, I have no doubt that this public image of, you know, Bill Cosby as this great family man and stuff, that was just what it was, a public image that had very, very little to do with reality, which takes nothing away from the fact that he was a wonderful entertainer and things like that. But on a personal level, this image that he was created, eh, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty much pretty much false. I have no doubt that, again, where there's smoke, there's fire, and that somewhere along the line, when you have woman after woman after woman after woman, you know, coming up and they're all telling the same story, we went over there, clearly they're probably starstruck, they want to try to get something from him, they're flattered by the attention, you know, whatever, and one after another saying, hey, he slipped me this drug or that drug or whatever, and we had non-consensual sex, at some point in time, when one woman after another from very, very different walks of life over a period of time start telling the same story, I got to believe that there's probably something to that. Now, that is different, though, from being able to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And this is the type of case which I think if you have good lawyers, and he has good lawyers, is going to be very difficult to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Like I say, what the judge has already said is the evidence, unless he testifies, the evidence of uh, these allegations by other women, those are too old, they can't be brought in. There can be some use that other women said he gave them quaaludes, but, okay, that that in and of itself is nowhere near as damaging as saying, hey, there's been all these sexual assault lawsuits against you that you filed, that have been filed against you and you've settled. Um, There's this overall pattern of practice. Presumably, a jury is not going to be told that. Now, again, finding a jury that doesn't know about these allegations is going to be kind of difficult, but that evidence isn't going to be introduced in court. You've got a situation where you have a victim, an alleged victim in this case, who waits a year to go to the police, who has various contact with the her alleged rapist over the period of that year, including giving him gifts and things like that. And, you know, you people will be able to explain why this happened and things like that. But but again, that's the type of thing that screams reasonable doubt. Then you take the time that's gone on. And I think in some respects, this is just going to be a very, very difficult prosecution. So the jury selection starts today. This will get a lot of attention, as, as it probably deservedly does. But at the end of the day, don't be surprised if Bill Cosby gets acquitted. And, and once again, it's not a reflection necessarily on whether he did it or not, because that's not what our trial system is really about. The question isn't whether somebody did it or not. It's whether the prosecution can prove they did it the person committed the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. And for the reasons I was talking about, including the passage of time, this this case to me screams reasonable doubt, regardless of what ended up happening. So don't be surprised if Bill Cosby ends up getting acquitted of this particular thing, regardless of what might have happened. It is 1024. When we come back, hey, what's going on over the weekend in Chicago with the uh, Cubs? Um, What does Craig Council say? It's the first time he ever had a rain out and guys got sunburned. Stick around. We'll talk about it. It's 1028, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. What's the secret to a successful summer vacation? It might be right in front of you, and yet you'd never realize to consider the source. Hmm. John McCure reveals the answer, 334, during Wisconsin's afternoon news. Okay, so Saturday, 
Um, I was watching the weather because I had some stuff to do, including some stuff that I was going to do outside and didn't get around to doing it because Saturday in Milwaukee was just really crummy. It started raining, what, mid to late morning, and Jane Matner, it just didn't stop at all, right? It was yeah. lousy. It was, it was just a genuinely awful day. But if we've learned nothing in Wisconsin... We have learned that a little bit of distance makes a, a, a great difference. I mean, there are times Green Bay will get hit with a snowstorm and we'll get nothing. I mean, there's times that West Bend will get hit with a snowstorm and we get nothing. You know, 30, 60, 90 miles make a big difference. So I'm kind of looking at the radar. And I, I'm, I'm watching this because it's very apparent that, okay, it's going to be a really, really crummy day here, so you know, spend all your time inside. One of the things I was thinking of, well, all right, the, the Brewers are going to be playing the Cubs. All right, well, what, what's going on? You know, what, what's the weather like in Chicago? So I'm looking at the radar, and uh, again, the, you know, Paul Joseph, former you know, chief meteorologist at today's TMJ4, always cautioned us, you know, don't interpret the radar. But, okay, I'm looking at the radar, and there's no rain over Chicago. I mean, all the rain is like it starts at, like, the Wisconsin line. This is, you know, and looking moving forward, it doesn't look like there's going to be any rain in the Chicago area after some rain early in the morning. And I'm thinking, okay, great, I'm going to be able to listen to the ball game. This will be tremendous when I'm running errands and things like that. Well, I didn't get to listen to the ball game because they called the game because of rain. Problem was, there was absolutely no rain in Chicago. So was this just a profound screw-up, or was there more to it? Ten thirty four, Jeff Wagner, six twenty, WTMJ, WTMJ's classic free ride is out of our garage and it's ready to head into yours. You can register online to win the nineteen sixty eight Valenti Oldsmobile four four two convertible by heading to WTMJ.com. It's sponsored by Prescient Financial Solutions with Northwest Northwestern Mutual. And don't forget to text the word ride to four one four seven nine nine one six twenty to check out a photo gallery of your next car. How cool is that? So anyhow, I, I mean it was it was crummy here on Saturday. There, there's no question about it. And if we still had County Stadium, the the way weather was in southeastern Wisconsin, you you would not want to sit outside and play a game. Now Friday, in Chicago, the weather was awful. They had a couple hour rain delay. They probably kept the game going too long. But but ultimately, they had a two hour rain delay. Um, there was only like about a thousand people in the stands when they resumed it because it was a a miserable day down in chicago on friday saturday is a big the game was sold out lots of people buy tickets i'll share a story with that about and 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 come from all over sell out all right so the weather forecasts were, were sort of iffy but like i say here i'm looking at the radar i'm not a meteorologist but i can see that you know as it gets to be late morning all the rain is north of the state line there's nothing going on in chicago yet late morning the Chicago Cubs, and before the All-Star break, it's the team that gets to make the call. Afterwards, it's the umpires. But before that, the, the Cubs make the call. They cancel the game a couple hours before it is scheduled to start. Well, it had pretty much stopped raining by the time they canceled the game. And it didn't rain again. 
Matter of fact, I am told that uh, Saturday night, uh, Saturday afternoon in Chicago was really, really nice. I have a text from Paul in Marshfield. He says, hey, Jeff, we got up early to drive down to Chicago for the game only to get the postponement notification as the L train doors closed. We still had a nice day walking around Wrigleyville and pretty decent baseball weather. Biggest bummer is having to ask for work off for the makeup date. There's a reason why people buy expensive Saturday tickets. So, yeah, I mean, people were thinking, hey, this this is it. Um, no rain, a very, very nice day. So the Cubs, their story is, well, we just got the weather forecast wrong. We, we relied on, on bad information. Now, many of the forecasts, though, didn't have it raining in Chicago until the evening. Apparently, it didn't rain at all. But most of the forecasts said, hey, the, the weather's going to be you know decent, certainly a lot better than they played in on Friday. So what would be the tactical advantage to doing this? I mean, if you were a conspiracy theorist, well, the, the Chicago Cubs, who won the World Series last year and were odds-on favorite to win the World Series this year, they're not playing that well. A lot. I read the Chicago papers, getting a lot of criticism. Um, before yesterday's game, they were one game over 500. Um, a lot of people have been unhappy with the Cubs. The Brewers, on the other hand, are the story in baseball so far this year. Five, six games above 500, whatever the numbers are, in first place in the NL Central. Will it last the whole year? I don't know. You sure, wouldn't that be a great ride if it did? But you know, I don't know. But the bottom line is they are a huge success story. After essentially being playing themselves out of contention by April, You know, we're going into Memorial Day, and depending on what happens this week, they could very well be in first place. At least they're going to certainly... If not in the Central Division, they're contending for a wild card. It's a, the Brewers are this great success story. The Cubs, not so much so. And, of course, the Brewers win the game on Friday. One of the theories out there is that uh, the Cubs just didn't want to play the hot team, wanted to take the day off and kind of cool off the Brewers. All right. The Cubs just say, no, there's nothing to this. We just got the forecast wrong. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. Was this a premature cancellation of a game? Was it just a monumental screw-up by Chicago uh, Cub officials? Because, I mean, the truth is you could have played. I mean, you could have played. Or was this, hey, we're concerned, the weather was crummy yesterday, we're trying to be fan-friendly, we didn't want people to come out and then have to sit around for an hour or two or three and then find out the game had been canceled. We wanted to do this um, early to just allow people to make other plans. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I guess at the risk of going down the conspiracy theory, um, number one, it was obviously premature. Who cancels a game several hours in advance, especially in the face of some weather forecasts that suggest that you could play the game? That's number one. Number two, and I don't think I'm necessarily donning a tinfoil hat. If the Cubs had been on a seven or eight game winning streak and the Brewers had been losing game after game, my guess is this game would have been played. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, was this just a, a screw-up by the Cubs, or was there perhaps more going on, or was this not a screw-up? Did they just say, hey, you know, we are we don't want people to be uncomfortable, so this is what we're going to do. 414-799-1620. Um, 1-800-877-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Mark in Oak Creek. Mark, you're first. Good morning. 
Hey, good morning, Jeff. How are you today? I am well, thank you. Okay, good. was this was something going on here beyond just the we want to be fan friendly and cancel this game hours before it's supposed to be played? I totally do not believe that. I was telling the person that answered right. the phone, I was down there. And actually, an hour before the game, we were getting spots of sun, and you couldn't. It, and in the afternoon, turned out so beautiful yeah. that, and, and my son-in-law was looking on his phone and said, "There's no radar. There's yeah. no rain coming here. What's going on?" Fortunately, we went to the game yesterday, and I, I actually think yesterday's weather was worse than Saturday because it was so windy, and it wasn't so windy on Saturday even. Yeah. So it turned. So you. I mean. So you had. Did you? Did you have tickets to the game on Saturday? Yes, uh, no, not Saturday, just okay. Sunday. So I'm fortunate, but we were down there. Yeah, yeah I just, I, I mean, we were I, down there with the whole crowd. There were all kinds of people there, and they called it. I didn't. Nobody could understand why. Well, yeah. So you think something stinks about this? Yes. The, the rumor we got, Jeff, was that though there was puddles on the field. Yeah. Well, that's what, uh, was, that was, that's what was was being passed around. Yeah. Well. Okay. So. So. I don't know. The Chicago Cubs are so fragile that you can't play a game if there's like you can't figure out how to deal with some puddles on the field or something. They're huh. afraid of the brew crew. I, well, thanks. I think they're. I think, no, I mean, I don't mind. A, I don't mind stoking this rivalry, but it, and and people do make mistakes, and I I understand that they're they call it in the industry they call them bust forecasts, but but the forecasts that was the thing. The forecasts, at least some of them, you know, didn't call for any rain in the afternoon. Uh, they, they said, okay, there might be a little bit of rain. In the evening. Now, I understand that there are times where, you, you know, you're going to, why bother bringing people out to a game if you know that the game is going to be called? I mean, I, I understand that, you know, why make people drive and pay for parking and all that type of stuff. But those are typically in situations where it, it's very, very clear that there's like a two-day weather system that's in there. In this particular case, again, if you just look at the radar, you could see that there was nothing on the radar at all. I don't want to go down this conspiracy route, but you know what? I think there was something to do with this. And I stand by what I said. I think if the Cubs had been on a seven-game winning streak instead of struggling to stay a little bit over 500, they would have gone ahead and they would have played the game. I think it's gamesmanship, and I think it's kind of interesting that the Cubbies, the world champion Cubbies, might be a little bit afraid to play our very own Milwaukee Brewers. Uh, this also demonstrates, and again, you're not going to do it at Wrigley Field, but it also demonstrates how lucky we are to have the um, to have Miller Park. Um, and I, I think you know it's uh, because you know these games are going to happen. I just think I think the Cubs did a huge disservice to all the people that had had tickets by not at least waiting a little bit. Let's talk to Dan in Milton. Dan, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Dan. Hey, I'm, a, I'm actually a Cubs fan, and yeah. I was at that game living live up here. But, um, yeah, I was very disappointed. I was standing in line for an hour to get the free bobblehead. And, right, it was a bobblehead day, yeah. And I remember looking at the forecast going, hey, I think this thing might clear out. There, I saw a 50-50 chance on, my, on AccuWeather.com. Right. So did you? Let me ask you: Did you hang around then in Chicago? You know, after the game got canceled, and do some stuff down there. Yeah, because I was going to the game yesterday too. Right. So, so nice day. I mean, I, I'm told Saturday afternoon in Chicago. Now Saturday afternoon here was miserable, but Saturday afternoon in Chicago was pretty nice. The sun came out, right? Yeah, we went to Harry Carey's downtown, <laughs> and then um, about one thirty came outside and said, "Oh, it's hardly <laughs> sunny. It's not raining." 
What? I mean, we're only four miles from the ballpark. I know weather can be a little different, but not like. Oh, okay, so Dan, what do you what do you think was going on? Do you think that this was uh, just a monumental screw up by Cubs officials because they're the ones that made the call, um, or do you think that there might have been something else, some some sort of strategic thing going on? I I don't know because <laughs> they opened the gates. I was waiting under the main marquee, and I'm yeah. thinking they. Probably already made hot dogs and stuff sure. because they, they called it two minutes before the gates were supposed to open. Yeah. And I thought there was going to be mutiny because everyone started chanting, Bob O'Head. <laughs> Bob O'Head. And, and, and yeah, I. I don't. Okay, thanks. I mean, again, I, I don't. I don't want to go too far down the conspiracy theory thing, but I repeat what I said. If the Cubs had been on a hot streak, they would have figured out a way to get this game in. And by the way, if you had tickets to the game, whether you're a Brewers fan or a Cubs fan or whatever, you should be mad as you know what. Now they've rescheduled the game for July 6. Brewers aren't happy because that was like an off day, and now they have to end up giving that up. I just think this idea. As a general rule, especially around here and especially where there's conflicting forecasts, to call a game on a Saturday um, where you know it's going to be a sellout hours before the game is irresponsible in the extreme. And I don't know. It makes you wonder what's going on with the Cubs. It's 1049, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. What is the future of the plans for Franklin's Ballpark Commons? Are Milwaukee County supervisors putting politics over progress? Scafidi and Billstead have the latest at 135 here on WTMJ. Um, it's interesting. I think Steve Scafidi and I disagree about uh, the Franklin Ballpark Commons. But the one thing we agree about is uh, when the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors, the Clown Car Act, gets involved. Um, how, how do we say Milwaukee County supervisors could screw up a free trip to Disney World? That would be the that would be the phrase that I would use. And yeah, um, regardless of whether you think it's a good idea or not, like I say, Scafidi and I, I think disagree on that. Um, yeah, the County Board of Supervisors, they're getting involved. You know, nothing good is going to happen there. All right, uh, for those of you who uh, who know your Bible. Uh, Matthew 5.9, Matthew 5.9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 5.11, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, so that's, you're probably familiar with those Bible verses, but, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, right? That's that's it, Matthew 5.9. I bring this up because there is a sheriff in Montgomery County, Virginia, who had a decal prepared, and the decal went on the squad cars of of all the different sheriff's deputies. The decal said, Blessed are the peacemakers, Matthew 5.9. They've been on the squad cars since March. Everything is fine, except in the midst of National Police Week last week, the County Board of Supervisors in Montgomery County, Virginia, probably doing its best to try to emulate the Milwaukee County Board of Supervisors, decided to say, nope, that phrase has, those decals have to go. Um, 
we say, we believe that when you put on blessed are the peacemakers in a public vehicle and make reference to Matthew 5, 9, there are quote unquote serious concerns about the establishment clause and separation of church and state and the first amendment. Um, and so they decide, here's the deal. We are concerned that if we put this phrase on the squad cars and the ACLU ends up suing or some of these other groups, we might have to shell out hundreds of thousands of dollars, and we don't want to do this. Now, candidly, I don't think, I think, now, could you be sued? Yes, of course, you you, you could be sued. Candidly, I don't think there's any chance that if they were sued, they would lose this particular lawsuit. Um, my guess is the county meetings start with like like prayers and things like that, and the idea of separation of church and state, which doesn't exist, you know, except as sort of this legal concept that's been created. Um, I just, I candidly, I don't think it bars. Again, putting a phrase like "blessed are the peacemakers" and and attributing it to, in this case, Matthew five nine, I don't think that I don't think that that violates the establishment clause at at, at all. But I understand what's going on here. You have these public officials who are once again intimidated by the anti-religion kooks and zealots that are out there who decide, well, if we don't do this, if we don't take this off, they're going to sue and maybe we're going to lose. But regardless, you know, we don't want to take the risk of having to pay our attorneys to defend this. And we don't want to have to worry about perhaps having to pay like a huge lawsuit. So we will back down to the legal bullies that work for these religious, anti-religious zealots. To me, Nothing wrong with putting blessed are the peacemakers and an attribution to where that came from, because you can either believe in the the Bible as a religious document or you can believe it as as just an historical document. And this is attributing where the statements come from. And certainly I don't think there's anything wrong with putting the concept blessed are the peacemakers on law enforcement vehicles. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, let the games continue in Washington, D.C. I'm looking at the headline. This is out of Fox Business, but it's typical of what's going on. Priebus to make early return to Washington job status in question. Reince Priebus, who is, of course, Donald Trump's chief of staff, who, in my opinion, has the toughest job in Washington, D.C., is making an early return to the White House after traveling with President Trump on his first overseas trip, fueling speculation that the administration is in a crisis and that his position as chief of staff could be imperiled. The White House confirmed that Priebus is heading back to Washington, D.C. after they made the stops in Saudi Arabia. All right, so this is the this is the story. It's administration in crisis, Priebus's job. Look, I, I don't know what Reince's job status is, and candidly, if I were Reince, just for the sake of my own health, maybe I'd be looking at what I want to do next because it can't be a it just can't be any fun. But you know what they're saying is okay. There, there's no story here. The trip has always been. There's a lot of stuff going on. The plan has always been that he wasn't going to be with the president for all nine days. He was going to be there in the beginning, and then he was going to come back to D.C. to start working on other things, like the rolling out the budget sometime soon. Now the long knives would say, "Oh, this means his job's in jeopardy." Um, it sounds like it has been planned from the beginning. Nothing to see here, but of course, if you're the mainstream media covering Donald Trump, that 
You just you can't take nothing to see here as an answer. It is 1059. When we come back, a flat tax for Wisconsin. Stick around. It's 1109. Jeff Wagner, glad to have you with us. All right. So Supreme Court has struck down Republican-drawn um, congressional districts in North Carolina, ruling um, by a 5-3 to three vote with Justice Clarence Thomas joining the, the four liberals on the court, ruling that um, – it was actually, I guess, 5-3 um, – Five three, but you had Clarence Thomas joining the four liberal justices and saying that he believed that North Carolina, the Republican lawmakers, when they drew the new congressional districts back after the 2010 elections, they improperly considered they had used an excessive use of race in the redistricting. Essentially, um, what the allegations were is they put. They, they used race. Let, let's let's create a bunch of majority African American districts, and then as a result, we'll also we'll gain a Republican advantage because we'll create a majority that'll let us create more white districts. That was the argument. The um, question becomes: What does that mean for Wisconsin? The Supreme Court is considering Wisconsin's redistricting issue. My short answer is: I think nothing. Because the, the allegations and the challenges to the districts in North Carolina was based on race. In Wisconsin, it's not. In Wisconsin, the argument is essentially that they were that the way the draft, the, the way redistricting was done, was to concentrate Democrats, make some districts non-competitive by con- by putting more and more Democrats in them, which means that then you'd have more Republican districts as well, because the Republican districts would be more Republican, and the Democrats would be more Democratic, whereas if you spread out, move some Democrats into another district, it might be more competitive. But race really wasn't the factor, and so I don't think this decision means much one way or the other in Wisconsin. The problem with um, the challenging in Wisconsin is that it's it's one thing if you want to consider something like race, but just saying, gee, you made Democratic districts more heavily Democratic. Well, well, yeah, because the truth is Democrats in Wisconsin tend to congregate and live in the urban areas. I mean, wh- where is the most heavily Democratic areas of the state? Well, it's going to be the city of Milwaukee, and it, it's going to be, you know, Madison and Dane County. Well, all right, if, if you're trying to draw districts for, like, statewide elections uh, – you know, all right, what what are you supposed to do? Gee, we want to get more Democrats are choosing to live in the city of Milwaukee. So what are we going to do in an effort to get more Democratic voters into, I don't know, some of the other areas? Are we going to start carving up the city of Milwaukee? And instead of having just a couple of city of Milwaukee districts, are we going to run out some out to Waukesha just for the sake of trying to get more Democrats in? I, I just... This argument doesn't make any sense. I think the Supreme Court's not going to buy it, but I guess time will tell. All right. Um, a new story out. Again, this is this is more breaking news, and it, it dovetails on something that I have been talking about for a, a while. If you think back to the people who were responsible for September 11th, it was not people who came into this country illegally. That is, it's not people who got entry to the country illegally. It was people who came in on student visas who then overstayed those visas 
and just essentially disappeared. We, we, we didn't we did not track them. All right. There is a new study out this morning. Um, you know, and, and here's what it says. More than six hundred thousand, six hundred thousand foreign travelers who legally entered the United States in 2016 on visas. So maybe it's a work visa, maybe it's a student visa, whatever. They come in legally. More than 600,000 foreign travelers who legally entered the U.S. in 2016 have overstayed their visas and remained in the country at the end of the year. Now, this is only, this is a relatively small number of the travelers who arrive in the United States. But it makes up, I mean, if you consider that there's illegal 11 million undocumented immigrants who live in in the U.S., I mean, 600,000 are, at least in 2016, 600,000 people who came in were people who have overstayed their visas. And the problem is we do little or nothing to keep track of people who overstay their visas. Our numbers are 414. Our number is 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you talk to people in this country who have traveled to other countries, they will tell you, and, and people who've been there on maybe a student visa or a work visa or whatever, they will tell you that if they if they overstay their visa, depending on the country, by more than a day or two, there are authorities knocking on their door and telling them they got to leave or that they are going to be arrested. This is a big deal in other countries. It is not, unfortunately, a big deal in the United States, where apparently we allow people to come into this country legally and then just sort of blend in. I understand that a lot of people who do this, it's just inadvertent. It's a mistake, didn't know when the visa was going to expire, all those different types of things. I I understand that. And I'm not saying that those people need to be locked up or anything like that. But it does appear to me to be a fundamental weakness in our immigration system that you can have people who come in on a visa and then just essentially disappear into this country with us having no no basis or no inclination or no way of tracking them down to figure out where they are. The vast majority of these 600,000 people who came in in 2016 alone, I'm sure, don't pose a threat to national security. But... Don't we need to do a better job if we're we're talking, and this is where, you know, we're we're talking about a wall. We're talking about tightening the border with Mexico. We're talking about, you know, enhancing our efforts to try to deter people from coming into the country illegally, all of which, you know, to one extent or another, I support. But at the same time, don't we also need to be concerned with people who come into the country legally who then overstay their visas and disappear into this country. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To me, have we, have we learned less, nothing from 9-11? I mean, because seriously, that was the flaw that 9-11 exposed in our system. And if you had 600,000 people who come into this country, overstay their visa in 2016 alone, and are still in the country at the end of the year, tells me we've got a lot of work to do. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Don't we need to tighten this up? 
It's 1119 Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. And, and matter of fact, I, I've talked to a couple of people who tell me these stories, too. I know a couple of people I'm relatively close to who, who, who are citizens of other countries who come in legitimately on visas. And in one case, I remember telling me a story about how a, a legitimate legitimate confusion, they overstay their visa by a couple of days, and, and then, okay, they, they get really jerked around um, when they're trying to come back into the, this country. At the same time, you know, but here's people that are, you know, make honest mistakes or trying to do the right thing are very, very mindful of laws. And yet in this country, you come in on a visa and then you just disappear into the country. You could give, you know, just don't care about that. You just decide, okay, once I'm in and those people just go essentially undetected. Again, the folks that are trying to do the right things, they're the ones that get messed over with this. We do a very good job of keeping track of when people come into this country. Unfortunately, we do a lousy job of keeping track of what happens once people enter the country, and especially a lousy job when people grossly overstay their visas. 600,000 people, and again, I acknowledge that the vast majority of these 600,000 are probably people who, again, it's an honest mistake or it's something like that. But the truth is we don't know. Let's talk to Ben in Germantown. Ben, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, Jeff. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. You know, I think if we made it, the process more streamlined, made it easier, more affordable for these people to stay. They're not going to overstay their, their welcome. Or, you know, once your visa expires, they're less likely to. I think if we streamline the process, they're going to want to stay and say, yeah. hey, this is easy enough. I can do this. I don't need to just kind of fly into the radar for the next, you know, 15 right. or 20 years being an illegal, you know, alien or. or right. Yeah. Streamline the process, I think, is, is going to make a lot of sense. But all these politicians that talk about immigration reform, it just sounds like noise and really nothing ever happened. Well, right, because there's, right, and thanks to call, Ben, because there's all this different, you know, political dialogue that's going on. And I guess, to me, I have a text here that says, you know, Dan writes, this has always been the low-hanging fruit. And and I agree. Look, I I think, again, the majority of people who are doing this, it's an inadvertent type of, it's an inadvertent type of situation. And I, and and I'm I'm not saying, but again, talk to people who travel overseas, who overstay visas, and they'll tell you stories about how the you know authorities are knocking on the door a couple a couple days after they've overstayed and saying, hey, you know, you, you got to figure out a way to extend this or, or whatever. And I, I'm not talking about harassing people that, that do that. I, I'm not. But what concerns me is that this seems like a gaping hole in our immigration system that we, we don't keep track. We have no way of monitoring, essentially, you know, what happens if somebody comes in and they overstay their visas. And again, I'm not talking about the person for a couple of days or a week or whatever who's, you know, gotten ill or something, and, you know, so they have to make other flight arrangements. That's not the, the issue. I'm talking about the, the 9-11 terrorists who come in, who enter on student visas and then just disappear. And we have no way of tracking where they are, no way of catching them, no way of identifying them until they hijack a plane and fly it into the Pentagon. That's, I guess, what the concern is. And, you know, these numbers, again, 600,000 in one year alone, and that's just 2016, tells me that we need to at least figure out a better way of, of figuring out where people are. And my guess is that the vast majority of people who come in here illegally on visas, they're not going to have a problem with that. They, they recognize, okay, this is where I am. This is where you can find me. Okay, fine. I don't think people are going to have that 
problem at all. At least most people aren't going to have the problem because they understand that you have to have some sort of control. I'm not worried about the vast majority, like I say, that I believe it's an inadvertent error. I am worried about the people who have decided to use the visa system as a way to exploit um, a weakness. Gee, it's easier to get into this country. Instead of trying to sneak in across the border, especially with all the attention that's going on there, it's easier to come in on that student visa and then just, all right, disappear, drop out of the, I'm going to enroll in the flight school. I'm going to drop out after three weeks. I'm not going to give a forwarding address. And then you're just, you're just there. You're in this country and nobody's going to be able to keep track of you. That's what I think. And those are the people that I think you kind of need to target. And th- these numbers should be kind of an awakening here saying, all right, maybe we just need to do a better job of tracking people. And like I say, I think most people coming in on visas don't have an issue with that. They they understand. And I think that's what you find certainly being done in, in many, many European countries where, you know, people know where, where you are and they know when the visa expires. It's 1127, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. He's the only governor in American history to win a recall election, and all signs point to him running for re-election next fall. Governor Scott Walker and First Lady Tanette Walker join John McCure for a special one-hour WTMJ community conversation. Don't miss their discussion beginning at 4 o'clock tomorrow during Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Yeah, if this is anything like um, at, at Insight... Uh, when we did that a couple weeks ago, um, we did two segments with Governor Walker and then brought out um, Tanette and uh, we just it was a wonderful conversation. And um, if this is anything like that, it is definitely must listen to radio. So be sure to check that out. Four o'clock tomorrow, WTMJ Community Conversation, Governor Scott Walker and First Lady Tanette Walker um, with John McCure. That sounds absolutely, just sounds absolutely outstanding. I, um, you know, President Trump is making his first trip overseas, and uh, he was in Saudi Arabia. And I, I understand there, there are media commentators out there that can't give Donald Trump credit for doing anything. And again, I've tried to take a more nuanced view. I have criticized him when I think he deserves criticism. But at the same time, he's, everything he's doing is not wrong. That, that's just not true. And candidly, a lot of my objections—it's—it's it's as much substance, probably it's more style that is than it is—is is substance. It's just kind of the way he goes about things, which is sort of like a bull in a china shop, and that's kind of his style. But he went to Saudi Arabia and gave a speech that, well, even the New York Times, which just hates Donald Trump collectively, um, they had to say, well, it. it it, it could have been a lot worse, which is, I think, the way most people would say of, you know, giving it an A, gave a very, very well-received speech in, in Saudi Arabia talking about the need of Muslim nations to rise up and deal with Muslim terrorism, Islamic terrorism, which I think is, that's a phrase that, of course, Barack Obama was never willing to do that um, and tried to pretend that there wasn't Islamic terrorism. Well, I mean, Trump, Trump identified that, and he got a remarkably warm reception in Saudi Arabia. Now he's in Israel, and he's actually, he's in Jerusalem. Um, the story is that he became the first sitting president to pray at Jerusalem's Western Wall on Monday. Of course, that's a site with significance, both religious and, and political, and he's trying to broker peace between Israel and Palestine. I, I don't know if anybody can do it. I mean, I, you just can you bring peace in the Middle East? Who knows? But the reality of this is um, Trump's apparently going to take a stab at it, and it will be interesting to see if he is able to bring to bring the, the Israelis together with the Palestines. Will, will he get credit? 
you know, will we be talking Nobel Peace Prize if he's able to deliver on something like this? Um, stay tuned. It's 11.35. Jeff Wagner, glad to have you with us. It may be early, but the Brewers are a first-place team. If that's still the case by midsummer, should David Stearns become a buyer? Greg Matzik says the team needs to stay the course no matter where it is in the standings. He will explain tonight during Sports Central at 6.15. And the Brewers get back into action at Miller Park against Toronto tomorrow. You can hear the game coverage on WTMJ or better yet. You know, take us along with you, listen to the game, but actually go out to the game and enjoy it. Brewers playing really good baseball. Obviously, um, a great start. The last two years, they pretty much played themselves out of contention by the end of April. And now, here it is. We're pushing Memorial Day weekend, and they are in first place. Uh, Very, very fun. Okay. Wisconsin, despite having a Republican governor for, you know, the last X number of, of years, Wisconsin still... When it comes to income taxes, when it comes to the income taxes, Wisconsin still remains uh, the 16th highest overall tax rating. Um, we're still the 16th highest among the states. That's that's not that's better than it's been, but still that means 34 states, you know, have a higher tax, have a lower tax rating than, than us, and that's. It's, you don't. That's one where you know you don't want to be at the highest. Now, State Representative Dale Cuyang has come out with this very interesting program talking about a flat tax. Now, unfortunately, he's kind of messed around with that because, in addition to talking about a flat tax, what he wants to do is he wants to you know impose a sales tax on gasoline, um, which you you do that. And the plan essentially becomes a non-starter because it would substantially raise the amount of money that people pay at the pump. But I, I, So I want to put that aside. I want to talk about the concept of a flat tax. In Wisconsin right now, we have what they call a progressive tax, and that is that the tax rate increases based on the amount of money you make, kind of like the federal income tax. But... But the state tax system, just like the federal tax system, is a mess. I mean, you know, if you have even a moderately complicated financial picture, and I'm talking about anything other than, you know, um, some, some W-2 income, what, what, what you find is you get into this maze of deductions. I, up until this year, I used to do the, the taxes. You know, I'd sit down with TurboTax, and I used to do all my taxes. Finally gave that up this year, and glad I did. But... But I swear, I'd look at the state tax form, and, I mean, TurboTax and all would do the math. I could, and I, I think that I'm as smart as the average bear, I couldn't figure out how some, what they were doing. I mean, you know, I, I could do the math, and I, I could see, you put in the information, how they calculate it, but I had no clue. I mean, I was trying to figure out, okay, why is this doing this, and why are we going after that? There's all these exemptions, there's all these deductions. It's just, it's a flat-out mess. So here, here's the way a flat tax would work. Essentially, everybody pays the same rate. The, the idea would be essentially almost, I think Kuyunga's plan is 3.9%. So let, let's round that up to, to 4%. So it's really simple. At 4%, at 4% um, everybody pays the same percentage. So uh, again, for example, if you're making... You know, $25,000 a year, you know, you pay, you know, 4%. 
if you're making $300,000 a year, you're making, you know, you, you pay 4%. So higher income earners pay more as a bottom line, but percentage-wise, it's all the same. The argument is, if you go to a flat tax, first of all, it would encourage more high earners to stay in Wisconsin as opposed to leaving. The argument is, if you went to a flat tax, it would encourage more retirees, many of whom are drawing government pensions from the state, to to stay in Wisconsin instead of having to leave because of the tax structure. So the idea is it's fairer. The idea is it would encourage people to stay because right now um, there are Obviously, there's a number of states. Seven states have no individual income tax at all. Um, and eight ta- states have a flat tax rate, including Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan. What's more, for those of us who believe that government is too big, uh, most of the projections say if you went to a flat tax, it would, big picture, reduce the amount of money coming into to government keeping more money in people's pockets. And therefore, if you, again, reduce the amount of tax money that is coming in, what you end up doing is you, by nature, reduce government spending. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think there's a lot to this. Now, again, the devil are in the details, and part of the problem is that the proposal that's going through Madison right now, it's kind of a starting point, sort of mucks things up by increasing sales taxes on gasoline, which makes it a non-starter. But the idea, is this such a revolutionary idea that essentially we do away with lots of deductions and we just say you pay a flat rate based on what your income is going to be. So everybody participates to an extent. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1141. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 1144. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Tony in West Dallas. Tony, good morning. Good morning. What do you think? Well, what I think is that it's a regressive tax. Anytime you have uh, a 4% tax across the board, it affects the poor more than it does the rich. Tony, let me ask you this. Do you know in Wisconsin, do you know what the lowest uh, tax rate is? Do you know what the tax rate that the lowest income earners pay? No. 4%. So I, I, four percent. So this would be a flat across the board. So actually, um, actually, some of the proposals would actually lower the the rate to three point seven five or three point nine percent. I'm just using four percent to throw it out. But that's what the bottom. That's already what the bottom taxpayers pay. That that four percent. So I guess I don't see them getting hurt. Now you can argue that you know the high income earners they're not going to end up paying as much and that's probably true depending on what your deductions are but I, I guess what's what's wrong with everybody paying the same percentage well well Rasperow ran on this idea mm-hmm. uh, and it didn't seem to go very well for him so yeah well I mean uh, I, th- I mean I guess I think so. I mean I so I just I mean I throw this out there and and for people who think this is this kind of radical notion I mean like I say, Seven states have no income tax at all. Eight states, in, including three around us, 
um, you know, in Illinois and Michigan and Indiana, they have a flat tax rate. And just, just to give you an idea, the, you know, Tony was talking about, like, the, the percentage. Right now, the, the, bottom, the bottom rung in Wisconsin is, is 4%. Um, in Illinois, for example, um, their flat tax rate is 3.75%. So in the story I'm looking at, you know, millionaires in Chicago pay a lower tax rate than than the the lowest income earners in Wisconsin. I mean, so here's part of the other problem. If if we wonder why we have particularly retirees that are fleeing the state, I I understand that you've got issues with with weather and things like that, but, but the economics of our tax system is driving people out of the state. I can't tell you how many people I run into nowadays who are retired or close to retirement and they are they're in a position where financially they are well enough off that they can maintain two residences. Um, and, and they'd they'd love to stay in Wisconsin. They'd love to continue to be Wisconsin citizens, but economically, it just makes no sense to do that. So you know, they keep track of their records and they make sure they spend at least one you know fifty percent of the year plus one day in Florida or in Arizona or whatever. I'm just wondering how much money we're ultimately losing by by not doing something like this. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Like I say, the devil in the details. And what's going on in Madison has messed up this this concept by monkeying around with increasing the sales tax and things like that. But, I mean, just just the flat tax. And and Tony is right that it is regressive. It is regressive like a wheel tax is regressive, meaning that that everybody. But but it is and it isn't wheel tax is the ultimate in a regressive tax because everybody pays the same amount. Now, that's really regressive. doesn't matter whether, you know, you're in poverty or whether you're a millionaire. Everybody's paying the $30 in Milwaukee County, for example, to to register their car. So that's, that's the ultimate in a regressive tax. The flat tax, it's a percentage. Everybody pays the same percentage rate, but... Again, somebody that's making $30,000 pays $1,200 under my 4% number. Somebody who's making $300,000 pays 12000 So regressive, I, I don't know, regressive as far as rate to an extent, but, but people are paying different amounts of money. The people who are doing better or making more income, they're still going to have to pay more. Rudy in West Dallas. Rudy, you're on 620 WTMJ. Hi. Hi. I I go along with this uh, type of tax, but I'd go a little further. I would uh, tax all the income at 4%, regardless of where it comes from. And I would also give every person a $5,000 deduction, personal deduction. Um, so the, so you could account for the people at the very lowest levels and stuff? Yes. That would do. Yeah, I guess I'd... Um, that, that's where the... Uh, $5,000 deduction would come in. Yeah. And I guess I, I'd have to sit down. Right. Because, I mean, thanks. Because at, at right, I mean, right now, the, the very lowest income earners, um, you know, don't trigger that, that 4%. You have to make a certain threshold. And I'd have to actually sit down and, and look at the, the various details to see, okay, where is that going to, um, you know, where is that going to end up kicking in? But, but the truth of the matter is, our income tax system, and I'd, I'd make this argument federally as well as state, it, it's just a mess. 
you know, with, with the different deductions that are out there, I, I do think, you know, we, we penalize success to an extent. I want to give retirees an incentive to stay in this state. And the truth of the matter is, you know, one of the things that's driving retirees out is the tax burden that we impose. And we've got enough other stuff going on when we're dealing with the weather and things like that. Is that going to keep every, for example, retired teacher um, staying in Milwaukee or staying in the state instead of going to Arizona or Florida or Tennessee or one of the other low-tax states? No, but it gives us a better chance to do that. Um, Mary in Milwaukee. Mary, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Ah, yes, I agree with the flat tax rates. Everybody pays taxes, and everybody's got some skin in the game. Yep. Uh, people don't pay, uh, low-income people don't pay less than Illinois because uh, our rate is a marginal rate, and the marginal rate is how much they pay on their taxable income. By the time a person, low-income, is through with their tax return, all their deductions and all their credits and the refundable credits, mm-hmm. They don't pay any taxes, and then they also end up getting a check from the government. That's what the refundable credit is. Yeah, the the, the money back. Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, thank, I mean, yeah, I understand. I mean, that's why when I, when the example I was using, I was saying let's take somebody. Let's not look at somebody who's making twelve thousand dollars or fifteen thousand dollars a year. Let's look at somebody who's making thirty thousand dollars a year. And again, I appreciate by the by the time you add the deductions in and stuff, you know, maybe you could could end up zeroing that out. It's going to depend on your individual circumstance. But I, I was really saying that. That response to you know, our caller Tony, who said it's regressive, meaning it has, you know, it impacts low-income people more than high-income people, and not necessarily. I mean, because the high-income people are still gonna, they're still gonna pay more. They're gonna pay three hundred thousand dollars. You pay, you know, twelve grand, thirty thousand. You pay twelve hundred. So the more money you make, the more money you're gonna pay. It's just not a punitive level where the brackets go up. And let let's not lose the other thing that's what's going on here. I think ultimately by putting more money in the pockets of taxpayers around here, um, you you are you do reduce the amount of revenue that's coming into the state, which means the state. All right, we, we shrink the size of government necessarily because, you know, there's there's less money that ends up coming in. So I, I think this is something that needs to be on the table because, like I say, it's what we're doing right now is just an absolute and, and total mess. It's driving people out of the state, and, you know, we at least need to keep it on the table, whatever that percentage might be.